This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Lewis Newman. Download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. Well, um, I'm so glad that, that we can do this. And I don't, I don't want to talk about anything substantive here before we start. <laughs> so okay. we'll just let, we'll make small talk for a couple more minutes. That, while, that's totally fine. <laughs> I've we, been rushing around all morning unpacking okay. boxes and things. So small talk sounds just oh, fine. Are you to me. moving? We are moving. We oh. are in the middle of, uh, really exactly in the middle of moving uh, to a new house. So um, it's been a little chaotic. Yeah. Are you moving inside St. Paul? We are. In fact, mm-hmm. we're moving inside our, our same neighborhood. Oh uh, we just moved. We're, we're just downsizing. So mm-hmm. okay. we found the house we wanted a few blocks away, actually. Oh, that's, that's pretty nice. Funny. Which is very nice. Yeah. It's actually very convenient for moving things back and forth. Yeah. But, um, but uh, anyway, it's been a little crazy. Oh, okay. Well, um, Chris, how are we doing? Should we... Do you need do you need level Jimmy Okay. Are you are you, are you wondering about an echo or anything like that? Are you do I sound okay, Lewis? Do I sound um you sound just fine. You sound okay. exactly the way you sound on the radio, Krista. <laughs> okay, well, <what laughs> which a I surprise. guess is the way you ought to sound, right? <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think we can go. And so you know, you you've heard the show, and we get to have a I real conversation. Have. And this this piece is even more, you know, it's. Um, I think it'll. I I, I I am so excited to talk about this. And I, what I was going to say is, it doesn't have to be linear. Um, but it's a you know, there's so much. There's so many places to go. Um, Okay. So yeah, so um, so I would like to start where you know where I always start. Um, um, I wonder if there was a how how you would describe the spiritual background of your life of your childhood. I would say that I grew up here in Saint Paul uh, in a family that was very deeply Jewish. My parents were both um, leaders in the Jewish community in a variety of ways. They belonged to and led and were on the boards of all sorts of Jewish organizations, actually, mm-hmm. both locally and nationally. So I grew up in a home in which um, Jewish affairs and issues of um, Jewish life were just kind of dinner table conversation all the time. Uh, so that was that was kind of in the, in the air. And then um, they felt Im- that it was important for me to get a strong Jewish education, which my mother had had, but my father hadn't. He'd grown up in a small town in in Brainerd, in northern Minnesota, right. um, and so uh, and so, they sent me to a, a Jewish afternoon school, which was uh, really the only option at the time. And and unlike most kids who sort of drop out after their bar or bat mitzvah age, I continued because I actually enjoyed it and I liked studying and I found the material interesting. And I uh, the, it actually got more interesting uh, mm-hmm. as you got farther along because the kids who were there really wanted to be there, so you actually had more substantive conversation. So I just sort of kept going. And after I got to the end of high school, I decided I wanted to keep studying in college. So I took Hebrew and more Hebrew in college and so on. So it it just sort of became a very important part of my educational life. Um, But you're not a rabbi, are you? I'm not a rabbi. So you were, so your interest was, was in delving into the theology um, as a, as an academic rather than a spiritual leader. That's right. Mm -hmm. I can tell you a very funny story quickly, which is that, uh, one of the rabbis that I studied with as a, as a child, uh, who has since passed away, was a very important figure in my life, Fred Schwartz, who was the rabbi of Mount Zion Temple in St. Paul. And I very distinctly remember him telling a story at one point about how uh, he was being chewed out by some congregant because they had changed the position of the of the pews in the sanctuary of the synagogue. Um, 
And I, I had a revelation at that moment that I did not want to be a congregational rabbi <laughs> and have to deal with that. What right. I really wanted to do was to study and to teach and, yeah. and not to deal with all that. So I kind of followed the academic path. Yeah. Um, and then I think as I've gotten older, I've kind of come around through my own development to sort of explore uh, the, the, the personal relevance of this material to me. And mm-hmm. my academic life and my personal life are more and more intertwined the older I get, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, I just want to mention one other thing. When you, in your writing, you talk about in your childhood that you were, you were kind of a model child and that everyone told you that. And it seems mm. to me that, that that came with a certain, mm, like, a spiritual pressure, um, almost kind of a, it, it had, it was a complicated thing that, that created some distortions for you. And I just, I wondered if you would even, to me, that also kind of belonged to that background that from through which you've emerged (laughs) absolutely uh and it was only later on i suppose through some years of therapy that i came to realize that i mean i was proud of myself when i was a kid that you know my parents always thought i was i could sort of do no wrong yeah Uh, and then i began to realize as i got older that that was really a double-edged sword and that the other side of that was i could never admit to myself that i had done something wrong i had to figure out some way to hide it or run from it or make it better immediately. Um, And so I became um, more and more prone, I think, to wanting to claim only the best parts of myself and not the parts that were um, things I wouldn't want the world to know or things Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want my parents to know. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and that leads me, of course, into the subject of repentance. It does. It leads right into... I became aware that you know there's there's work to do here, yeah. and and there's a kind of wholeness that's missing when you try to live your life always in that place of perfection or striving yeah. uh, for perfection. Yeah, and so you wrote this book um, on repentance um, a few years ago, and and I you know it's been sitting in my office all this time, and I don't I can't explain the mysterious ways by which we finally get to something. <laughs> But you know, I've, I've, it's a. I think repentance is such a. I think it's the, the the both the idea and the 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 notion are so important. But one of the things you point out is that um, um, it's you know repentance is connected to the language and the notion of sin, um, and it's often used in conjunction with forgiveness and often, as you say, kind of confused with forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But it's it's quite a separate thing. So so I think as we start, I just want to um, I want to talk, you know, I, and I think that the language of sin in particular, you know, is very prominent in Christian culture and in American culture. Um, and one of the things that you point out that feels important to me is you say, you know, in Christianity, um, of course, it's a very complicated notion in theology and sacred text, but but it's of, it's often connected in, in in kind of a surface way with with death and kind of with um, condemnation. And you talk about how it, it, it is an important notion for you, but that Judaism sees it as less threatening that there's that it leaves more room for and requires more cultivation of the practice of repentance. So I wonder if you'd just talk a little bit about kind of separating out repentance from sin and forgiveness, the way these things get talked about culturally. Sure. 
Well, this is obviously a very rich topic, and we it could is. spend a long time on. We could spend a long I know, time on and sin altogether. So let's and, not. And I, we can't stay here too long. Cause, but we, <laughs> let's start course, there because it feels important. Of course, to me. yeah, it is. It is important, and I started the book there actually, realizing that you couldn't really talk about repentance without talking first about sin and yeah. transgression. And this is a very loaded notion. Um, yeah, for and Jews. it's actually and, and, not very. It's, it doesn't ring very. Doesn't work very well in modern ears. I think. I think that's right, mm-hmm. and um, and that's why I begin by saying that that while there are obviously many different strains within every religious tradition, um, much of what Judaism teaches about sin is that it's a kind of it's, it's more like illness than it is like death, mm-hmm. um, and of course sometimes illnesses can be life threatening, but but many times they're not, and, and and so you can be healed. There's a lot of talk about forgiveness and repentance as a form of healing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's a sense of there's something wrong that needs attention, uh, but it's not something that's necessarily my undoing. If only I bring my proper attention to it and turn away from the path that I'm on toward uh, a different path, a, mm-hmm. a path of wholeness and integrity. And, and so in, in a certain way, I think I, I make the contrast, and it's a facile one, but I from the reading that I did in, in the background of the book, it does seem to me that Christian writers very much more often talk about sin as a kind of, it's, it's innate in our nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Jewish writers tend to talk about sin as, though that, though that notion is also present in Judaism, yeah. they tend to talk about sin much more as missing the mark. It's a, it's a mistake. It could be a, ser- a very serious mistake. But, but it's a mistake, and a mistake can be atoned for and it can be undone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's why I think ultimately uh, in, in, in Christianity, while there's, of course, talk of repentance, ultimately many strains of Christianity will, will say that people are not capable of redeeming themselves. They can only be redeemed through the death and resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in, in Judaism, there is a way to be redeemed through your own action. You, f- you, you made the mistake and you can actually undo the mistake. Right through your own turning away from from transgression toward toward a more righteous and, and, and holistic way of living. Yeah. I mean, here's something you wrote that I, I just, I really like this. Sin, sin is about, and let me just say one thing. You know, one of my favorite quotes of Niebuhr is, you know, when he said, uh, you know, to know there's something to the notion of original sin, and he was very aware that it didn't quite make sense in modern years. You just have to read today's newspaper to see that there's something to it, right? Absolutely. Um, so, so I think we can talk about it in lofty terms, and then we can actually kind of look around the world with a reality-based view and say, okay, there's something going on. But here's something you said. Sin is about pretending that something is true when, in fact, it is not Idolatry is, is, idolatry is pretending that something is divine and worthy of our devotion when, in fact, it is not. And then he wrote, doing teshuva, which is repentance, is all about choosing truth over deception. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah. No, I think that's really – I say over and over again in different ways in, in the book that I think repentance really is about coming to terms with who we really are. Um, and, and that's true in a couple of senses. It's true both in terms of – Claiming our own mistakes, not mm-hmm. running from them, not hiding them, but actually claiming them, knowing that they're true and owning them. Um, and also owning the fact that, that deep down, the, our, our core essence is, is ultimately good. God created us with a pure soul, uh, our tradition teaches. And in that sense, 
doing repentance, doing shuva, is about returning to the purity and wholeness that's kind of your original nature that you've strayed from. Uh, and, and in that sense, uh, in that sense too, it's about honesty and truthfulness. It's about being being true to who we really are, ultimately. Right. You know, I don't want to get into this, but it's just occurred to me as I'm listening to you say that. You know, part of the dynamic in American culture is that we talk about we get very focused on particular sins, right? Sexual sins, um, mm-hmm. and I think the discussion that has now shifted, at least generationally, is you know homosexuality is a sin, or or you know is it in fact the way people experience themselves to have been created, right? And mm-hmm. kind of what you're saying is, um, you know, you're talking about repentance as a way to bridge that. You know, it's like it's a language that comes in between that divide. Um, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about the word because the, because language and words and letters in Hebrew are so mm-hmm. important. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we can they're barely this isn't transparent to people reading the Bible who don't know Hebrew. And so, talk about um, you know, it's it's very metaphorical and visual, and so it's turning or. The the, the 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 exact translation of shuvah would be turning, returning, responding. Talk about right. that word and the different metaphors um, that it suggests, and how those add up to a definition. <laughs> right. No, I think it is very important, and um, and words are deeply important, of course. And, and in Hebrew, there are sort of root root words, and the the root word of teshuva or tshuva, as people would typically say in, yeah. in, in anglicized form, is that it's, it is about turning. Uh, so turning away from the path you've been on back toward uh, a loftier goal, uh, back toward our true selves, back toward God, back toward a, a righteous life. Right? So it's a, it's a kind of shifting orientation, so really turning your attention somewhere else. It's also about returning, and in that sense, returning to one's true nature, as I said a minute ago, that, that sense of coming back to who we really um, uh, most deeply are and, and we're meant to be, uh, and turning, of course, um, to God. Uh, and, and finally, it has that sense of responding. Uh, shuva, in another sense, means a response and an answer in, in modern Hebrew. Uh, uh, and... Um, and in that sense, it's really about as if there's a call coming out to us all the time, inviting us hmm. to repent. In fact, the tradition talks about this. There's a voice always coming from from Mount Sinai, inviting us to to return. And, and that sense of responding to a, to an ongoing call that's that's there, whether we're listening to it or not, uh, is is very much a part of what we mean by uh, repentance. So it's. It's a kind of turning inward, but also turning toward the one we've harmed, also turning toward God, turning mm-hmm. away from mm-hmm. one path toward another. It has many layers of uh, of meaning in that, in that sense. And, you know, when you talk about a return to our truest self, our, our deepest self, it it's almost strikes me. Also, I keep thinking of this line of T.S. Eliot, you know, going home and arriving and knowing it for the first time, because the truth is that deepest self, that... That highest self is not is something we spend our whole lives long being able to recognize, right? Right. Um, That's right. So it's not necessarily a returning to something um, that we knew before, even if it is a return. That's that's right, and that's mm-hmm. 
that's the sense in which it's sort of a discovery. Yeah. Uh, it, it is like finding yourself for the first time. Yeah. Um, it's it's as if you, you you never realized how far astray you had gone in a sense until you sort of go through a process of soul searching or soul reckoning, as I as I use the term in the book, and yeah. and that's. That's the process by which we really come to know ourselves, know know who we were really meant to be, find right. the goodness in ourselves that has been kind of buried beneath shame or guilt or a sense of failure or inability to uh, to, uh, to to meet our own expectations or or for that matter the expectations of others, and and, and that's that's the kind it is a kind of a homecoming, um, <laughs> but but a homecoming to a place that may. We, 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 may, we may never really have been before. Right, it's it may that, not it's, seem it's, familiar. <laughs> it may not seem familiar, yeah. except it's where yeah. we were always, always meant to be. Mm-hmm. And once you're there, you realize that that's where you were meant to be. I remember when I studied the Hebrew Bible, um, and this was 20 years ago now, um, he, 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 yeah, um, my professor talking about how visual the word is and that it was literally, tell me if this is right, if I'm remembering this right, mm-hmm. that it was like literally like, it, it had this image of literally stopping in your tracks and turning in another direction. That was mm-hmm. a very physical image. I think that's. I think that's right. Um, uh, I heard someone once say, and I've unfortunately lost track of who said it. You know, it's very important in Jewish tradition to to quote the teacher that you heard yes. something from, and I, yeah. I unfortunately can no longer do that because I can't put my finger on the source anymore. But someone pointed out that you know, if you think about this in terms of a three hundred and sixty degree circle. Um, if you're headed in one direction and you ch- and you turn only one degree or two degrees to the right or to the left, over a long period of time, it may be a very slight turn, mm-hmm. but over an extended period of time, if you now walk in that direction, you'll end up in an utterly different place than if you extend that line outward infinitely. You, you actually end up in a very different place than you would have had you just stayed uh, in the direction that you were going. And, and that, that sense of turning even slightly, yeah. but moving away, is a very important concept because it, it suggests we don't have to do a 180-degree turn yeah. Yeah. right to do tshuva. It's, it, it doesn't have to be a radical, all of a sudden, transformation into a, into a new life. It's actually a very gradual process of recognizing, you know, I need to pay attention to that particular failing a little bit more and move in a little different direction. Now, did I? Is it right? Did you? You said in your book that the noun tshuva does not appear anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere, certainly in the sense in which it 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 comes to have the meaning of repentance much, much later on. The verb form appears. Okay. But I'm fairly certain that the term tshuva as repentance doesn't uh, appear in the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Um, the concept, I think, is there embedded in all of these passages in the prophets, which talk about turn toward God and, 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 and return, but, but not as a noun, as, as the full complex of all of the pieces that okay. the rabbis later developed. It involves right. Repentance. apology this, and restitution yes. and soul-searching. and so, right? That whole process, as described later, doesn't, doesn't ever appear in a single place. So, so what's the connection, again, that is linguistic and metaphorical with, with the creative force of the universe, right? Where there's, there's something in there that was fascinating to me. Hmm. Well, I guess I... You, say a little bit more about what you're... Well, so what, what, you're, I, what, what I wrote down is... I, is I saw this is coming up in your stuff and some of the quotes you had from other people that, that somehow there is this notion in Jewish tradition of, that we, we have this power and this potential in any moment 
to choose good or evil, to create good or create evil, and that is there some connection with with the in the word, um, or or I mean, what was the, the other thing is uh, this is somewhat else in my notes. This idea that re- I'll find this and you, this this will be, this, you'll know what I'm talking about. That that um, uh, that. That was it. That repentance was there before the creation, right? Right. Or right. Somehow that yes. repentance preceded the creation of the world. Is right. that something talmudic? Right. It is talmudic, and yes. it's actually one of the most startling and puzzling of the things that the rabbis say, uh, the ancient rabbis say about repentance. How could it? How could there be something? First of all, how could there be anything created before the creation of the world? Right. There's that. There's that question. But then there's. Of all the things that the rabbis list that were created before the before the world, why, why is repentance one of them? Yeah. Um, and, and there are many ways of interpreting that. They don't answer that that question for us. And, and many interpreters in later eras have have explored that that theme. Um, it, it's one of the things I found most uh, really rewarding and rich as I as I explored this material. Um, uh, Rabbi Dean Steinsaltz, who's most yes. noted an Israeli scholar for his uh, work on the Talmud, actually, um, but who's also a, a very, very profound philosopher, um, wrote, a, wrote a wonderful essay in which he explored this idea that, look, when we, when we do something wrong, what's done is done. We cannot literally go back in time and undo what we did. It's impossible, right? We only move in one direction yeah. in time, right? Yeah. So, so we can't actually go back and undo the wrong we did. And yet, repentance is precisely that process by which we can, as it were, morally, in the moral realm, if not in the, in, in, in the, in the physical realm, we can undo what we did because we can go back to the deed, we can examine ourselves, we can... Uh, make amends for it, we can apologize for it, we can find that part of ourselves that led to doing the transgression and search inside ourselves and reform ourselves. And in that way, we can actually undo the wrong in a, in a, in a moral way, even though we can't go back in time. And, and to that extent, it's as if repentance allows us to to breach the, the you know the laws of causality in a, in a in this funny way it's, it has to be created before the physical world because once you're in the physical world the laws of causality and the laws of uh, oh, time marching forward are, are set but repentance allows us to sort of tap into some primordial power by which we can undo what was once done uh, and, and that's a that's I think a, an extraordinary uh, notion and um, I, I find that inspiring to think that actually there's a way in which you know, we, we we are not chained to our past. We are not in bondage uh, to to even our most grievous mistakes. We can always find ways of repenting for them. There, there's something also, I think, that gets at a a really core point um, in your thinking about this. That you know, again, re- talking about repentance is is different from talking about you know moral obligation or moral condemnation or moral reckoning in the way we sometimes talk about sin, but that it is, in fact, about gaining freedom, gaining moral freedom, as you said, in fact, right. to create beyond whatever was damaged or flawed or harmful. Right. right. It, it's, um, it, it's a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting idea, and, and, and one of the things that I, um, that, that I came to realize is that in a certain sense, when we don't own our 
transgressions, when we run from them, which is, after all, the most natural thing to do, right? I, I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I cheated someone. I, I told a lie about something. I took credit for something I shouldn't have. I, you know, whatever, the, whatever it was, however small or large, right? Our immediate instinct often is to run away from it or to hide it or to lie about what we did wrong so that nobody will find out about it or something of that nature, right? Yeah. And, and, and in doing that, we essentially were in bondage to the thing that we've done. We're, mm-hmm. We have now essentially yeah. let, it, let it dictate our next move and the move after that, right? To, to do repentance is to be free of that. And, and ironically, or maybe paradoxically, really, it's when we own, it's when we run toward our transgressions rather than away from them that we actually become free of them, that we actually then right. can, can, by owning them and then claiming them and, and then distancing ourselves from what we have really taken full credit for, uh, only then are we really free of it. Then we can really say, what's done is done, what's past is past, I've made up for it. Right. Uh, I, I'm really now a different person. I have changed from being the person who did that. Hmm. And um, you are in recovery, I am. Mm-hmm. And, it's, you know, so it, it, it's, um, you know, that repentance begins with an acknowledgement of harm to oneself or others. And and there's, I mean, there's so much resonance, actually, with with, 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 with the kind of way of being that the, the, the spirituality of the 12 steps. Um, I just want to ask you, like, you know, how, um, how has that experience and that, that aspect of yourself how does that converge with with your fascination and commitment to this to this virtue of tshuva? Sure. No, it's been a very important part of my journey, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I joined a recovery group 14 years ago, um, and uh, and I've been going regularly uh, ever since. Um, and and it's a it's a profound experience in a lot of ways, partly. Because it's in the context of a very safe space of other people who are coming to terms with their own failings and their own addictions of various kinds that you actually have the freedom to say, I did this, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I drank to excess, I... uh, You know, I I did these other things and lied about them. I, I, you know, I did all of these things that I'm ashamed of. And say that out loud and know that the, the circle in which you're sitting is a circle of people who will accept you and support you in your desire to own those things and repent for them and become a different kind of person. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, I think the, the, the process of repentance, as Judaism describes it, is really quite close. The steps might have been in a slightly different order had, had, had a Jewish uh, person written them, but, yeah. uh, but, but that, that's a sort of a technicality, really. Uh, it, it, in fact, the 12-step program really is a program of repentance. It's a program of spiritual development and moral accountability yeah. uh, and, uh, and doing a searching and fearless moral inventory right, right. Is, is, is one of them. And, and in that sense, it's, it's really my, my work in the context of that 12-step group where some of my closest friends uh, can now be found is also uh, the, the, the work that our tradition asks us to do as Jews. That is to really come to terms with who we are, to own our transgressions, um, to be honest with ourselves and with others, um, and, and to commit ourselves not to perfection, but to a path of ongoing uh, spiritual and moral uh, development. And, and that's really... Um, 
my, my, my study of repentance and my, my work uh, of repentance through the, through the recovery program and outside of the recovery program too, really, uh, it, it have really come together. And, and it was really at the point at which I began to write this book and thought I was going to write a sort of a, a straightforward scholarly study of the history of repentance in Judaism or something like that, I began to realize that really the, the thing that I, that I most had to contribute to the subject was not only my scholarly ability to read these texts and interpret them, but actually my own personal journey. And to weave those two together would have been what, what was a much more authentic uh, presentation of what I think repentance is than, than it would have been had I pretended that I was just writing this in a purely academic, uh, uh, yeah. for, for academic purposes. And I wonder, I mean, you did mention the the language in the 12 steps to take a searching and fearless moral inventory. And, and you use the language of soul reckoning as, mm-hmm. as part of your understanding of repentance. So I'd like you to talk about that. But also just like how, as you said, the 12 steps might have been in a different order and they might have been phrased somewhat differently if they were written by a rabbi. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, I, but I'm also curious about how the language and the intelligence in the 12 steps has kind of flowed into your theology, your understanding, you know, how, how that has nuanced and deepened perhaps your understanding of, of the nature of repentance and the kind of stages of repentance. It's interesting. Um, there are many times when I'm sitting in that recovery circle listening to others speak and, and realize that something that they're saying resonates with one of those texts that I've studied and gives me another lens to see it through. Can you, um, can you think of an example when that happened? I'm just curious. Um, well, actually, um, uh, yeah. I mean, one, one of the examples um, I, I talk about in the, uh, in the book. So there's, uh, you know, it, it's common. One of the, the, first, the first step that someone gives in a, in a 12-step group is often a step in which you recount the story of your own addiction and some of the things that you did, whether that's, you know, drug abuse or... Uh, or, or other kinds of, uh, of addictive behaviors and, mm-hmm. and the ways in which it dragged you down and distorted your relationships and distorted your sense of self and um, filled you with a sense of, uh, of guilt and, and shame. And, um, and so when people uh, give a step like that in a group uh, and there's opportunity afterwards for others to give feedback and response, right? one of the people in my group consistently, time after time, would talk about... Um, how how much he appreciated hearing this person's story because he could see the goodness in this person, and and I I, I was really sort of taken aback the first time I heard I heard him do this. It was like, are you kidding? I just heard this person talking about you know being deceitful and mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, stealing to support his habit and whatever else he right. did, right? And, and and I find myself going, were you listen? Were you listening to the same person I was listening to? Because it's like, how did you saw the goodness in him, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 yet I realized after after hearing him do that a few times that what he heard was the remorse, uh, and the remorse really is the the sign of the goodness showing through. It's that point at which we both really acknowledge and claim and own what we did, and also step back from it and look at it from a bit of a distance and can say. I really don't want to live that life. I really want to live a very different sort of life. I, right. I, I'm really deeply remorseful and regretful about having done those things. I don't deny that I did them now, but I really now, having fully owned them, I've now distanced myself from them. And that's a sign of goodness. That's a sign of the goodness reasserting itself over against your, your having fallen into a dysfunctional pattern of behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and that's very much like what... Um, 
uh, Rabbi Nachman of Bratislava, a famous uh, Hasidic uh, teacher, uh, means when he says that we should always look for the good in others. And that, in fact, even in a person who is virtually completely sinful, he says, you should find the very smallest bit of goodness in them. And on that account, you should, you should, you should uh, judge them for their merits. And when you do that, he says, even for the person who is most, you know, most sinful, when you, when you see their goodness, you help them repent. Mm. And it's, mm. I think that's mm. exactly what, what my friend in this group was doing. He was seeing the goodness in someone else. And by acknowledging that and saying it out loud, he was effectively saying to them, I see your potential for goodness shining through this story of your remorse and all of the things now that you're looking back on in your life and wishing had been different. Um, you know, and that's such a different impulse than we have culturally, you know. <laughs> we, I think you say somewhere that we, we bounce back and forth between a pervasive failure to hold people accountable and an equally, equally powerful obsession with doing so. I mean, when, that's right. when people do admit their faults in public... Um, we're not saying, oh, you know, I see how good you are, right? I mean, we're not. We often kind of the kind of the cultural reaction is probably does the opposite of what you described. That the effect of that 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 response that you heard that, in the twelfth. That's step right. Here. That's right. I, I think that our, our culture is actually sort of got this got this all wrong, mostly in in the sense that we we, we do. I mean, you think about you know. We have a system in which even if you committed a, a serious felony, you can plea bargain your way down to doing something and, and, and being charged and, yeah. and convicted only of a lesser offense and get a lesser punishment Be- because we because that's the way the system works. It doesn't really want to hold us fully accountable always for everything at the highest, really at, at the most truthful level uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand... Um, you know, you know, you. I'm thinking of you know the Bill Clinton thing. You know, you smoked pot once when you were you know in yeah. uh, in college, and we're going to hold that against you now in, <laughs> in terms of whether you could become president of the United States, yeah. right? Um, and, and clearly, he was also guilty of other uh, transgressions uh, at, a, at a later point in his life. And and yet, there's a way in which, you know, we we want to hold people's like like hold a. Uh, a magnifying glass up to people and examine every small thing that they did wrong, uh, and uh, and and make make them sort of um, feel feel guilty years later right, for right. things that that maybe or, or to take an even better example after you've committed a felony in many states it's still true that you um, you lose your right to vote you lose your right to hold public office you right, lose your right, right. You no know, no matter how many years ago it was and no yeah. matter what good you may have done in the interim. Uh, it, it's not clear that our system allows you to actually repent and start over. And, and so there's this funny way in which I think repentance is exactly uh, in the middle. It's, it, it, it insists that you be held fully accountable, and it insists simultaneously that there's a way back. Right. There's a way to rectify the wrongs of the past and to move forward and to be free of them. And um, and, and that's that's a you know we we either want to do one yeah. <laughs> hold people fully accountable or not hold them accountable at all. You talk about right. it as a lost art, and I I think the 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 complexity of it you know is suggested by what, what you just said because there we have a couple of different impulses and they they go they land on either side of that. That's right. That's right. Um, 
when I was reading, I was getting ready to, to interview you, this, something from The Onion came across my desk. Uh-huh. The headline was, um, I'll be the first to admit I'm not perfect. I make mistakes the same as any of us do. We're only human after all, and despite our best intentions, we're bound to make poor choices now and then. We've heard that so many times, haven't we? Right. What distinguishes us as individuals is how we act when we discover we've made a mistake. For me, the answer is simple. It's all about keeping myself open to feedback that I can get incredibly defensive about and ultimately disregard. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Um, so Judaism does this incredible thing, right? For 20 centuries, every year, um, Jews observe Yom Kippur. The ancient Israelites set aside this day on the calendar right. um, of expiation of the sins of the people. Um, I, you know, I've, I've been, I've been, I've been, I'm, I can be envious at times of these, mm. <laughs> of mm. this kind of ritual, um, uh, which to me also Yom Kippur, you know, like just add like the word repentance. Mm-hmm. It has this bodily component. Mm-hmm. It's not merely spiritual, um, which really reflects an intelligence about the fullness of humanity, which, you know, it's, a, it's remarkable that that was in the origins of this ritual 20 centuries ago. Right. And, and from my perspective, I think it's an acknowledgement that, um, I mean, in, in modern terms, we might say, you know, hitting the reset button, right? It, there's, a, yeah. there's an acknowledgement that there has to be a way to sort of wipe the record clean and start over. Um, it, I, I, I use the analogy in the book. It, it's as if, you know, when you're a minor, certain offenses that you've committed don't stay on your record past, past the, the, you know, when you're, you turn 18 and then you get a clean record again. Yeah. It, 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 there's a way in which every year we ought to have an opportunity to examine the past, to own what we did, to repent for it, and to start fresh. And... It, it, it's as if we become, we, we sort of clean out, right, spiritually clean out the garbage, right, of, of the last year. And, um, and of course, it's, it's closely associated with the, with, with the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. It comes 10 days later. It's mm-hmm. the beginning of the new year. It's the first thing you do in the new year is you set aside a period of time, the 10 days between the beginning of the year and, and this day of, of atonement. You set aside for this this deep soul reckoning and apologizing to those you've harmed and really wanting to say, you know, if I'm, if I'm really going to be deserving of a new year of life, uh, I have to have gone through a process of really looking at what I did in the last year and really making amends for it and then really turning my attention to what do I want to do differently um, in the year ahead. Now, you know, in ancient times, you know, there was a whole ritual and uh, a goat was slaughtered and, and, you know, and, and, and all the rest of the, the ritual that involved putting the sins of the people onto a scapegoat and sending it off into the wilderness. And a, a lot of very, very powerful physical uh, rituals that we, of course, no longer observe. But all of that has been turned into a process of public confession um, and uh, and, and a process of personal introspection so that those days are really designed to clean us out. And, 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 that, and that's, that's right, that very much a part of the cleansing. tradition of why you wear white yeah. on, right. uh, on Yom Kippur, because you want to outwardly try to manifest the sort of sense of purity and freshness and new beginning that, you, that you're striving for internally and, and spiritually. What, 
What also feels so important and countercultural in a in an odd way is that that it is collective, right? And that you know, as you say, none of this is undertaken alone. Um, it's 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 atonement of people and the people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and I I, I was. Where's a Rabbi Harold Schulweis, who you who's who wrote, who who I think wrote a, one of the um, introductions to your book, and I interviewed mm-hmm. him years ago. He's an amazing mm-hmm. rabbi. Um, you know, says Shuva begins with the self, but it cannot end there. <laughs> right, right. Well, and I, and I think there's a, a profound spiritual truth in this. Um, in a, in a certain sense, the, the work is only our own. Right, I, I can't repent. For for you, nor you for me, right? Yeah. It, we, we have to do it internally, and in our, we, we have to come to terms with ourselves uh, by ourselves in one sense. But, but in another sense, it's when we're in a community of people who are doing this all at once, all together, recognizing that we have all strayed, we have all fallen short in various ways. And when we recite that confessional, it's all in the plural. We are doing it in one voice. Yeah. And, and that sense of solidarity and community is extraordinarily powerful. It means that I, I, I recognize that I'm not alone in this work. It can be very lonely and arduous. And, and, and to know that you are in a community of people who are also with you in this journey is, an, is, a, is a very powerful part of what uh, Jewish tradition wants us to, to acknowledge. Uh, and, and, I, and I think that for those, for those Jews who may do very little else during the, during the year by way of Jewish ritual, yeah. something Something remains of that sense of you begin the new year together in a community uh, go, going through this ritual of, of, of public confession and repentance. There's, I mean, there's also, there's this rich, wild theology of this in the depths of the Talmud and Jewish tradition. And, but I, I mean, kind of, I'd like to just tease out a little bit of that. I mean, there's this idea that, it, is, is it God... Repents of making man is that the language mm. in Genesis? Yes, um, it is. I think it gets translated. You know, I think I heard it going. You know, was sorry, was sorry. Mm. He had mm-hmm. made man. Um, and but then, what I was reading in your work as these Jewish um, in Jewish theology was that it's so so God repents. Um, but then the next step is is making a choice to to allow humankind to be like that there's that there's a choice for us to either be flawless and just automatons or mm. in fact free both to be flawed and to become courageous and moral you know free to repent <laughs> to to create right. a new possibility or the the better possibility that's right in a, in a certain way um you know, one of the things I suggest in the book is that um, repentance is an expression of of ultimate of our ultimate freedom. It's our freedom to say, even though every day of my life uh, for the last many years I have uh, drunk to excess or engaged in some other sort of deceitful behavior or whatever it might be, tomorrow I can make a different choice. I, ab- I have the absolute freedom to make a different choice. Tomorrow, and it seems to me that if if God is anything, God is absolutely free. God is unconstrained. Now we could talk for a long time about what God is and and, and what we mean by 
by that. Yeah. But, but it would seem to me that at very least, any concept of God requires that God be free. And when we're free, we're really exercising that part of ourselves which is most in the divine image. And, and that's why I think repentance is such a profound spiritual concept, because it's, it's connecting us to that, that part of ourselves which is most divine, really. And, you know, there's something else in your book. Rabbi Schulweis is saying um, there's, that, there's that mysterious language in Genesis 1 where God speaks in the plural. Mm. Let us make the humans in our image, male and female, which I've always loved that because I feel like it makes God genderless or, you know, kind mm, of like uh-huh. mul- in, in multiple, like we are multiple. But but what Rabbi Sholwes says is, you know, that his interpretation, and he's probably drawing on centuries of thinking about this, is that let us is also suggests kind of the the participation of the divine and the human in making humanity, that it's kind mm. of like becomes a joint venture. Um right. <laughs> that that is that is really a fascinating um, image for me. Right. Of course, there are, lots of people have, have have spilled a lot of ink over this question. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Of there, course. Yeah. Uh, and and, uh, and needless to say, most most Christian writers would immediately uh, take that that plural as a reference to the Trinity. Um, mm. And and of course, Jewish writers have not done that. Um, but but what that uh, what that plural means is. Uh, is certainly open open to many interpretations, and 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 I think what Rabbi Shulweis is pointing to is a very strong strain in Jewish tradition, that is, the the notion that the world was left imperfect, and together, God and humanity are supposed to work 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 in harmony with one another to bring about the perfection uh, that God didn't create from the start, because uh, because God wanted to leave some of that to us. Or as, as Buber says at one point, God God wants uh, the divine to be realized, but 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 through us, not mm-hmm. not just uh, through God's own from on uh, autonomous behavior, right? But but actually working through us, it's our hands that have to heal the world. It's our hands that have to clothe the naked and feed the hungry. And when we do those things, we are an extension of uh, of God acting in the world. And and when we do. Shuva, we are also, in a sense, bringing more of God's presence into the world, more mm. righteousness, more truthfulness, more honesty, more compassion, right? Each time we become that kind of person, work, work toward becoming more of that kind of person, we are becoming a little more godly. Right? Mm. Um, uh, and after all, the, the, one of the other pieces of that, of that Yom Kippur liturgy, which is repeated over and over again uh, through the course of the day is what we call the 13 attributes uh, of God. This is from Exodus. Uh, you know, God who's gracious, compassionate, all forgiving, and so forth. And you say that again and again. And, and, and it's as if it's a way of reminding you that if you only repent, God is sure to, for, God, God is sure to forgive you. And you can count on God, that being God's nature, but it's also a way of saying to be like God is to be just that way, to be compassionate and all-loving and forgiving, right? And, and so it's a, it's, it's a mantra, really, that gets repeated that helps us internalize those godly qualities, I think. You know, when I was reading you, uh, I kept thinking, 
I, I realized that at some point in the last couple of years in one of my conversations, the, the, the language of repentance came up in a way that was really surprising and refreshing, you know, that it was an unusual word to insert. And I was thinking and thinking, and I realized it was um, it was in a conversation I had with two um, elders, with a civil rights veteran, Vincent Harding, who died last year, mm. wonderful mm-hmm. civil rights elder, and uh, mm-hmm. Phyllis Tickle, who's a Christian spiritual writer and a, a kind of a, a real um, inspiration to some of the um, you know something called emerging church, kind of a new generation of Christians. Right. Anyway, they mm-hmm. they started talking about what they felt had been missing in our um, encounter with race. And you know, this was a couple of years ago, and it's all so much. You know, so much has stirred up to the surface now in comparison to then. But they talked about repentance as a really important contribution that. That that religious tradition could make to to our grappling with that, and um, so it, you know, and I and it's wonderful because, it, as you say, this is little. It's it's just it's just that much different from from how we usually come into this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and, so I mean, I'm I'm curious about what you think about that, but also I'd like to kind of break it down a bit. You know what what the theology of repentance says, and you know, what that looks like. Then you know how that how that unfolds. Um. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I want to say is that I, I fully agree that um, repentance is an underappreciated concept. It's most, it's also misunderstood, but I think it's mm-hmm. it's its depth and its reach is um, is not well appreciated by by a lot of people in our culture, and so. Um, you know, I, I do talk in passing uh, in the book about, you know, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example, in South Africa, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is, is an opportunity for people to really come forward and acknowledge their transgressions under apartheid. And 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 to have that airing is a sort of a, 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 a real public healing, a, yeah. a national healing takes place when, when there's that opportunity. So, you know, so, so imagine, you know, what would happen if, in a, in a whole range of ways, we had uh, the most prominent leaders of uh, of our government, of our uh, of civil society, uh, uh, in higher education, in ministry, uh, who who are who are Caucasian, to come forward and 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 repent to the African American community, not for any sin that they may have committed yet today, but but for the sins of our nation mm-hmm. in the past. Toward, uh, toward African Americans, and 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 to go beyond that, to actually say, not only are we prepared to acknowledge that we are complicit in a long history of racism, and, and that we've benefited really enormously from the sins of our forefathers, mm. but 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 also then to say that we would be willing to do things legally, financially, to if, if only even if they were only tokens of our uh, of our making amends to say we would we would make changes in our legal system and in our culture and in the way we speak to to try to undo the wrongs that we've done they can't really be undone but they could be symbolically owned and repented for you know it would be an enormous process of national healing if we could do that yeah. uh, but it also requires extraordinary courage and it, and it, and and a, and a huge amount of trust 
uh, because people don't want to do such a thing and, and then have it thrown back in their faces, right? So, so there's, there'd have to be an enormous uh, uh, preparation for this, right, to, to, to have it be an effective gesture of, of national reconciliation. But I, I must say that in light of the, all that's transpired since the events in, uh, in Ferguson last summer, it, it, it's clear to me that our country's in need of a kind of a national repentance. Yeah, some kind um, of really, I mean, what, what Yom Kippur does is it creates this container, right? This, this container and this, this ritual, um, it's almost like we need something. I mean, it's not this language of you know that stops us in our tracks, and that we that we like very visibly turn, return that language of repentance. Right. Um, but I'm you know I'm also I I think it's important that you know so there's also the day after Yom Kippur, <laughs> and mm, yes, uh, you know and, and I think you know the 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 the, sim- the ritual of being washed clean is one thing, and then there's the right. living it. I mean, you do That's right. as you talk about repentance, you know, it, it's not you know one place you talk about apology is not a one time thing. Right. It it becomes a way that you have to be, and over and over again that you ask for forgiveness wholeheartedly and repeatedly. Right. Um, that's right. also important, I think, to to put against this right. lovely word. Right. Well, and it's interesting. It 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 brings back to to mind one of the key passages that I discuss. Um, it, it's very interesting that the, the rabbis at one point say that um, the the person who's repented, genuinely repented. Well, I should start with a different piece. Actually, the person it, it asks the question: How how do you know when you've repented? How do you know when you're done? Yeah. And, and, and their answer is when you come across the same situation again and don't fall into the same moral trap again, right? So – and then they go on to say, you know, with, with the same woman in the same place at the same time, assuming it's a sexual sin of some, you know, right, some right. sort, okay. right? So – and that they're talking to men, right? And, and in that sense, they, they assume that in a way um, you, you get tested, you know, it, the, the failing – that caused you to, to repent in the first place was a behavioral failing. And it's only by changing the behavior that you ultimately, that's the proof of the pudding is in the, mm-hmm. is in the behavior, right? So it's when you're in the same situation, but don't fall into the same pattern of behavior that you can genuinely say, yes, I am now different than I was before. And of course, you don't have to reflect on that to, you know, for very long to recognize that, of course, just because I didn't fall into that trap today doesn't mean that tomorrow or, t- or next week I won't. Right? E- yeah. Each time the opportunity comes along, right, you're being tested in effect again. And each time you have the freedom to make a choice for being a better person or a choice for falling back into the dysfunctional behavior of the past. And so in that sense, you're never done because, you know, Every time the opportunity comes along, which is every day of our lives, yeah. you, you're always in a situation of having to do that soul searching and recognize your vulnerability and know ultimately that you're never done. You're, 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 you never reach a plateau where you can just rest and say, okay, I've finished now. Repentance isn't a goal. It isn't an end state. It's a process, and it's an endless process because we are by nature – Susceptible to moral failing. That's who. That's who we are. Right? Yeah. That's who God created us to be. And in that sense, the repentance never finishes, uh, and that's a good thing. 
right? It, it mm -hmm. means that there's always, every day, you have the opportunity to express your freedom and your ability to choose the right path over the wrong one. Um, you, you wrote something um, for the Jewish Forward, which is you know, a really interesting magazine. Um, mm. And you, know, you, you, you say that, so what you're describing is, it, it's, um, yeah, it's work, right? It's work that is the work of a lifetime. Mm. Um, Indeed. But, it, but in Judaism also there's this promise that the rewards of repentance are commensurate with the difficulty. And I, I think it was so interesting in this mm. article in the foreword, you know, they, they titled it, I don't know if this is the title you gave it, The Thrill of Repentance. <laughs> right, kind of pointing yeah. at what you gain, right. what you right. gain by this, by this right. way of living. Right. And, and it's true. I mean, I think, um, you know, for, for anyone, and, and it doesn't have to be through a 12-step program or any, any formal program at all, actually, right? But anyone who's had that experience of really coming to terms with something that they did wrong, actually apologizing and expressing their remorse to the person that they hurt and feeling free then of it, feeling like they have actually close the door on that particular event of the past and, and recognizes that they have reclaimed their integrity, reclaimed their sense of wholeness and feel, feel as though they have now moved beyond it, right? That, that process, which we've all experienced in one, at one time or another, um, is, is, is thrilling. It's, it's cleansing. And it, and it feels as though, sure, it's hard. Nobody wants to step forward to the person that they've harmed and say, you know, I really... You know, I was really callous and mean and, and, and short-sighted when I said or did the thing that I did right before. Right? But, but when you do it, you find that there's a liberation in it. And, and there's a sense of you, you look at yourself in the mirror and you feel proud of who you are as, as opposed to feeling like you have to hide who you are. And, and that, um, that really is thrilling uh, in, in a certain sense. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the joy that comes from... From, from feeling as though you've, you've, you've overcome uh, the past instead of being enslaved to it. Right. Um, there, there's something... Um, well, here's something, Adin Steinsalz. Stein, how do you say his name? Steinsalz. Steinsalz, yeah. Right. Um, this, this Israeli Talmudic scholar... You know, he said, you quote him saying, you should regard the faults, you know, this would be the thing that you were confessed, mm. repented, as something constructive, like the beginning of a new and beautiful story. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Well, that, and he's, he's discussing there this, this idea, the, the other passage that I was beginning to talk about a moment ago. The, the rabbis say, again, this very paradoxical and curious thing, uh, that the person who has sinned and repented is actually on a higher level than the person who's never sinned at all, so to speak, mm. as if there were such a person, right? Mm. But, but the, the person who's perfectly righteous is not, as, uh, is not on the same spiritual level as somebody who sinned and, re and fully repented for it. How could that be? I mean, that seems completely right, uh, counterintuitive. And, and I think what Steinsaltz is pointing to is this notion that when you've really when, when, you've, when you've always followed the right path, maybe, right, you don't know how vulnerable you are. You don't know where your susceptibility to transgression lies. You've, you, haven't, you haven't really maybe been tested. You don't know yourself as deeply. <laughs> when you've fallen off the, off the path right, and you've made mistakes and then recognized them and come to terms with them and repented for them, you actually 
know yourself more deeply and you've turned that negative event into a into a force for good it's actually mm. impelled you now forward into a new phase of your life so you actually have as the rabbi said at one point turned your faults into a, into a merit and um and, and the way that you do that is through this process of soul searching and self-examination that that actually is, is like you, instead of looking at your past and saying, oh, I did that thing wrong and I did that thing wrong and I, you know, I keep falling into that same bad pattern, you know, instead of that, uh, you find yourself saying, and that's just the beginning of a new opportunity for me to recognize some other opportunity for me to grow spiritually and to grow morally into, a, into an even better person. And, and, that, and in that sense, it is the beginning of a new story. Right? It's not the end. It's it's really the opportunity. Sin and transgression is really turned from a dead end into an opportunity to start mm-hmm. over. Right? But, I mean, isn't there something in this whole thing that is such a puzzle, so paradoxical and mysterious, right? First of all, that that we find it, that it is so challenging for us to do actually what we want to do or to be how we want to be. First, that. Um, it's not like any of us want to you know, transgress, whatever that means. Um, right. Um, and then, and then this this strange reality, strange and redemptive reality that suffering and where we fall down is very often a crucible for transformation. Right. It's, it's right. just the truth I'm, about human it, it life. Is. But it's it's right. weird, right? It I mean, is weird. It is it is paradoxical. There, there are many paradoxes um, <laughs> about about repentance and about the moral life in general. I think, mm-hmm. and 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 you're right. And that's why the, the rabbis. And this is this circles back to what we were talking about at the outset about the nature of sin. Um, you know, most contemporary Jews would find it startling to read some of what the rabbis say about sin. Um, because on the one hand, they do tend to talk about it, as I said earlier, as a sort of an illness or a simply missing of the mark. And, and yet at, another, at other times, they talk about the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, which is a, an, an ingrained part of us, yeah. no less than the good inclination. And they are at, at constant sort of in battle with one another inside of us. And, and in a certain sense, they, they, they talk over and over about how you have to steel yourself against the evil inclination, lest it, because it's wily and it will catch you off guard and it will drag you down when you least expect it and so on. And, and in that way, you know, they, they tell you you should have reverence for sin. Right? Reverence for sin is such an odd expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You should actually respect the power of sinfulness mm-hmm. because... You know, if you don't respect it, if you're not genuinely fearful of how powerful that that impulse to selfishness and dishonesty can be, right? And I mean, yeah, right? and again, then, then you're going to fall into you're you're, you're exactly going to fall victim to it. And that language of sin, again, you know, we talked about this earlier on. It's it falls in modern ears with you know, it doesn't really land well. But just to, just the fact that we you know we we are we are drawn to do things like in the moment we do them, we know we shouldn't, or that it's not good for us. It's not good for someone else, right? It's that lure. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, and I and I do think that. You know, in many cases, um, you know, we, we, we may we may do this for mysterious reasons that are mysterious to us, even right. But but I think when part of the process of repentance is to come to know ourselves more deeply, and there's a sense in which you come. You know, we talk in in the twelve step group about coming to know your addict, right? To know that 
addictive tendency within you yeah. right? and and to know it well and to know when it's likely to pounce right and and when it's going to catch you off guard and and that's very much like what the rabbis say about the evil inclination it's 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 through the process of repentance that we come to know that uh, evil inclination within us that temptation within us and to know how to work with it and to overcome it and to sidestep it and not to fall into the same pattern. Or if we do, to recognize it more quickly and know what we have to do to rectify it so that we can actually move forward in our lives uh, in, in a moral way. Yeah, so there's real psychological acuity in that language, that, that I, I think so. I think the rabbis were extraordinarily yeah. psychologically astute about this process, actually. Yeah. Um, so that word yetzer, yetzer, mm. isn't that connected to create to create? It is. Creation? It is. It's, it's, the, it's that part of it's the. It is yetzerah is creation. Right. It's it's in fact. Uh, so the so the evil inclination is also connected to this capacity to transmute and transform somehow. Right. It's right. Is that right? That's or right. To bring That's something right. different out of to bring something different out of what was. That's right, and and that's why Steinzeit says at one point in in, in his writing about this that. You know, the reason in his mind that the rabbis put the penitent at a higher level than the fully righteous person is because they have managed to sort of harness those forces. They've harnessed their evil inclination and harnessed the forces within them that were working against goodness and turned them around and made them into forces that they could actually use to propel them to deeper levels of self-examination and ultimately to more righteous behavior. And, and in that sense, you know, they have, they have, they have at, their, at their disposal, the penitent has at his or her disposal, all the forces working within them, even the forces for, for, for ill are working in their, in their favor uh, because they have turned them around and used them to propel them toward, toward higher levels of righteousness. Yeah. That's, a, that's an extraordinarily, uh, I think, profound insight. And and that also is the sense behind you know this, this statement of yours that hope it, hope is the spiritual foundation of shuva of repentance. Yeah. I think that's right, and, and mm-hmm. I think you know while most of us don't fall into a complete moral despair, you know I think that's uh, fairly uncommon. But I I dare say it's fairly common for many of us to feel as though, well you know. That's just who I am, you know. Yeah. Uh, leopard doesn't change its spots, you know. Right. Uh, you know, we have these expressions like that's just that's just who I am by nature, and I can't change, right? And and that's precisely the sort of attitude that's antithetical to the work of of tshuva. Or 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 just put it another way, we say, you know, what I did was, you know, on this particular occasion was so egregious. There's, there's nothing I could do to make up for it. It's it's a lost cause, right? right? Uh, and and in that sense, you know, the rabbis are saying over and over again, no matter how many barriers there are to this work of repentance, the gates of repentance, as they put it, are always open. They're always open. And so in that sense, there's always a road back. You just have to be willing to work hard to find it and hmm. do the work of repentance. Hmm. And, um, and, 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 that, and that requires a kind of hope. It requires a kind of willingness to say, my future can be different from my past. I really do have that freedom. You, and, you, you also talk about the difference between a repentance born of love and a repentance motivated by fear and that these right. things have different consequences the spirit right. in which you approach this right right the rabbis draw that mm. uh, draw that distinction mm-hmm. and they um you know they, they 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 say that repentance born of love is even more powerful than repentance born of fear 
Um, and and the, the notion would seem to be, though again, they don't ever spell this out in, you know, as fully as you might have wanted, but, but the commentary suggests that that's partly because if you're, if you're doing this work of repentance out of a sense of, you know, I'm, I'm, af- I'm afraid I'm going to get caught, so before I get caught, yeah. I'm going to repent for it, right? Yeah. Then, then, then that has, that's, that's good. It's better to repent than not, of course, right? But on the other hand, you're not doing it for the highest of motivations. And if you do it out of a genuine love of God or love of the, your neighbor, or for that matter, even love of yourself, right. that you really genuinely believe that you were created to do good in the world and you've fallen short of your own expectations of yourself, and, you, and out of love of yourself, you actually want to do this work of repentance. That, that, that actually raises you even higher in the spiritual realm. Right? It, 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 it pushes you farther right. toward God. You, you, you mentioned briefly um, in your writing that you once conducted some ethnographic studies of the ethics of professionals. I did. And I wonder, how Indiana does that, was, did, what did you learn? You know, how did that illuminate this, this reflection you've done on repentance and how humanly possible it is and how it might work in different parts of our lives? Right. It was fascinating. It's a very interesting project uh, through the Pointer Center uh, at Indiana University. I was, this is known quite a number of years ago. I was actually involved in two, two different phases of that uh, project, and two articles came, came out of that. One in, in involved looking at the ethics of—it was all about looking at the ethics of, of, of professionals of different yeah. kinds. And, and I, we, each person in the group chose a different group of professionals to work with. And um, once I did this with, uh, with pediatricians and pediatric specialists, mm. um, and once I did it with um, trial court judges. Mm. And, um, and in both cases, interestingly, I, I discovered one, one thing that was quite similar. Uh, th- there is, in the context of professional practice for, for physicians, the opportunity to acknowledge— Again, among themselves and in safe spaces, you know, I, I really made a mis- I really made a serious medical mistake here, right. uh, and, uh, and and some patient got worse or maybe even died as a result, and and I and I need to recognize that and own that because in order to avoid making that same mistake again, I need to know what I did wrong and I need to have a safe place in which to do that and to talk about that. Um, and, and the trial court judges that I talked to uh, talked about how. The power that they that they wield over the people who appear before them in court is is sort of awesome, and that and that they need to be aware of their own vulnerabilities, prejudices, failings. They need to know their own blind spots, to know that, as one judge put it to me, you know, uh, a very attractive young woman comes before him, and he might give her a more lenient, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, sentence than somebody who looks kind of like you know mean and bedraggled and somebody that he wouldn't you know want to associate with right and and to know that is to know that you have that vulnerability and to work against it to be blind to that is precisely um to to avoid the uh the kind of level of ethics that we expect of uh, of, of professionals and that they expect of themselves right? and, and so that to me tied in very closely with this this notion of of soul reckoning that we mm. have to actually know ourselves deeply that each each transgression is an opportunity to go now why did i do that why did i mm. you know speak ill of that person behind their back right or why did i you know snap at my spouse or you know scream at my kids or whatever i might have done on a given day right? what what was it going on for me that made me do something that i'm now regretting and and to know that about myself is to know 
where my where, where the growing edge of my moral life is, and and to be able to then move beyond the behavior of the past. And and so, um, what I what I learned in talking to these professionals really is that. They are, whether they call it repentance or not, they are engaged right. regularly in their own right. process of coming to terms with what their own vulnerabilities are and, and recognizing that if they don't do that, um, they, they risk some very serious um, mistakes. Yeah, so, so clearly, again, this is, this is work, but it's the work of being alive, being fully alive maybe. I mean, here's something you wrote that I that I that I, I want to read. I mean, it's a little bit long, but I, I think it's really lovely. You know, you say, you know, say the cost of ignoring the work of repentance, which I think we do in our public life, right, are not easily quantifiable. But the evidence is all around us. We see it in the lives of public figures, politicians, and corporate executives who get caught in some deceitful or fraudulent behavior and deny it. We see it on daytime television shows where people confess their transgressions before a live audience for their entertainment. Most of all, we know it in those quiet moments in our own lives when we recognize that we are not living up to our own moral standards, yet don't know how to restore our own sense of wholeness and integrity. And then you say, the ultimate benefit of doing shuva is that it offers us a way to overcome our past precisely because we have confronted and taken full responsibility for it. It enables us to escape the sense of guilt, in some cases even despair, with which many of us live. In its place, we come to live with self-acceptance and hope because we know that moral renewal is always a possibility. Right. It's very beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's striking. As I, as I did this exploration of repentance, you know, I was always struck every time I would read something in the paper or watch something on the evening <laughs> news. But, you know... The, the, the person standing for the courthouse, you know, and I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You know, it, when the when the truth finally comes out, I'll be completely exonerated. But and of course, in most cases, they're not at all. They yeah. they really are guilty. And and when the truth comes out and the evidence is presented, they actually have to have to acknowledge that you know, that they were yeah. that they were guilty. Um, you know, Rod Blagojevich comes to mind as just one one of many examples of you know this this sort of almost um, charade that. That gets that gets played, because we we have this notion that if we if we put up a good enough front, right, that the world doesn't have to know what we really did wrong, yeah, right, and 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 we'd rather they didn't know, we'd rather let that remain uh, a secret, and and so that's part of I think what makes the work of repentance so incredibly arduous is you have to be willing to live tr- transparently. At least, at least in the in the context of a of a of a small, to say, recovery group, or in the context of your most intimate relationships, you have to let people know you fully, and to do that is to make yourself extraordinarily vulnerable. Yeah. But it's also to make yourself extraordinarily free, <laughs> and and that's again the paradox, right? That you don't get that freedom without vulnerability. You don't get the thrill of repentance and the sense of renewal and wholeness and integrity without going through the valley of acknowledging and owning the the faults that are really there and yeah. uh and, and and that's uh that's why this work is ongoing so you know you pose a few hard questions i think puzzles really that that are 
you know, that have been much, much considered, but but still kind of remain hard, open questions. And one of them, I'd love to know how you think this through, is, you know, are there transgressions for which repentance is impossible? And if so, Mm. why? Right. Well, of course, this question invariably comes up when I speak about this um, in synagogues and other places where where I've been invited to talk. And, and, and you know, immediately for many modern Jews, it's the Holocaust. It's the it's Holocaust, the thing, right? I mean, right, that comes to right. mind. How can you? Yeah. How how can how could a Nazi repent for uh, the, the extraordinary? Yeah. How could that mean anything? Ex- right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And would we even would we even consider such a thing? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so so within the tradition, you find a couple of different points of view about this. Of course, you find this extraordinary passage in, in Exodus in, in the context of talking about Pharaoh and God hardening Pharaoh's heart and what does all that mean? And and um, and, and, it, and at some points the rabbis talk about the notion that, um, you know, the person who says, I'll sin and repent, I'll sin and repent, you know, as if to say, yeah, there's no big deal, I'll sin and I can just go on. Yom Kippur comes around, all of us, you know, I can, I can <laughs> right. get a free ticket. Right. Right. I, it's like a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? I, I just, I can, rep- you know, I, I can sin, you know, uh, willy-nilly and it doesn't really matter because I can always come back and it's all, all, ta- all taken care of, right? Yeah. Right. Th- that person, they say... Uh, it, it's not it's not possible for that for that person to repent, and it, it, they may mean by that that it's psychologically impossible for that person to ever really acknowledge, deeply acknowledge, and do the work of repentance. They they don't they haven't taken them them themselves seriously enough yet to, to actually do this work, um, and 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 it may um, it, it may be the case that there are people who have sort of become so habituated to sinful behavior and egregious behavior that they really, really can't find their way back. I think we've all known people who've integrated um, harmful behavior towards themselves or others into their sense of self, even into their sense of power, right? Right. And we've all done that at some point. But you, 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 I mean, I, I certainly think I've known people who you feel like they've gone past the point of no return. Right. Um, and and I, I I do think that that I do think that that's a possibility. And at the same time, I want to add, you know, the tradition also wants to say that even though, well, to take the common example, right? You've you've you you've got to make restitution. You've got to you've got to apologize and make restitution to the people you've harmed in order to do full repentance, right? Suppose that person can't be found. It was somebody that you mm-hmm. stumbled across, you know, in some situation and you don't even know their name. You couldn't even find them if you wanted to. Or suppose it's a person who's now passed away and you, you, you literally can't uh, uh, I mean, apologize or, to them. Or let's, I mean, let's name that, that hardest of examples. I mean, what if it's a Nazi who can't, who can't speak to the six million Jews who died, right? Or right. other millions of people who died. Right. Exactly. Um, and interestingly, you know, there are these there are these fascinating passages. One from Maimonides, in which he's sort of giving us this whole catalog of sins for which you 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 can't achieve full repentance, mm. supposedly because mm. of one of these things. There's a you know there's a barrier of one sort or another to doing one of the steps of of repentance that, that's required. And at the very end of the list, you know, paradoxical. Paradoxically, he says, you know, all of these are impediments to repentance, but if you truly want to repent, the <laughs> gates of repentance are always open and you can. <laughs> right. So he sort of wants to have it both ways in, yeah. in a funny sense. And I think, I think the tradition wants to walk a fine line because on the one hand, 
it wants to acknowledge the depths of evil to which humanity is capable of, of falling. And it wants to say, but hope is always there if you genuinely want it. So let's take the example of the, you know, of the, of, of the Nazi or of the mass murderer. Yeah. Right? Uh, you know, obviously the, uh, you know, the killings recently in Charleston come, come to mind. It's just yeah. a small example, yeah. really, right? But, but nonetheless, an extraordinary... Yeah. Right, the, the, the young man who, who walked into the church and, uh, and killed all those innocent people. And, and you want to say, what could a person possibly do? Well, so imagine for a moment if that person were willing to move into the African-American community and devote the rest of his life, and he might have a very long life ahead of him, right, to, to working on behalf of the issues that matter to African-Americans and supporting the church whose, you know, lives he, he, he destroyed that, that, that day, that Sunday. And, and, and if he were genuinely remorseful and spent the rest of his life devoted to undoing the wrong he did as best he could, would we not want to say, well, you know, he, he can't undo the past, but remember mm-hmm. the point is not undoing the past. The point is growing from the past and turning yourself around and demonstrating that you're genuinely a, a new person. Mm-hmm. And I think we we could acknowledge that that is a possibility. Well, and in the case of Charleston, there's also this remarkable witness in front of us of the family members of the people who he killed who that day de- declared that he was still worthy of love right so right. they and, and actually that, that, created an opening that's right and that and that that message is a you know we many Jews again think of that you know all forgiving God is uh, is kind of a, a kind of a Christian notion, and, yeah. and and the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God that wants to hold us accountable. Yeah. But but the truth is, God both wants to hold us accountable <laughs> and wants to forgive us. Yeah. And that's the that's one more of the paradoxes of of this work of repentance. Right? Hmm. You, you you have to be fully accountable, and then you have to believe that it's possible to fully move beyond what you did. Right. Um, if you're not fully accountable, then you don't have to do repentance. Right? If you're uh, you know, if, if, you, if you have no way back, then there's no point to doing repentance. It's exactly at the point at which you both are fully accountable and fully free to choose a different path that repentance sits. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's the balancing act, is not to run away from our accountability, um, you know, or, or, or to believe that, that we're so accountable and so enslaved to the past that we can never, never move beyond it. You have to believe both that you are accountable and that you're free in order to repent. That's great. Okay, just, just a minute. Let me, I want to ask a question behind the grass. Chris, so is it 2.22? Is that right, or is that the... Okay. Can we go a couple minutes after? And are we okay on there? Um, Lewis, can you, go, can you go a couple minutes after? I just, I've, got, I have, I've got all the time okay, in the world, Okay, because I have a few more questions. All, the, all, that's, all that's waiting for me back home are more boxes uh, Okay, unpack, all right. Because so we I, I can't do seven minutes, but we'll try to do 15. Okay, all right. We'll keep going, and then if we get booted out, we can boot it out. Um, so... so so this um, this also, uh, you know, comes close to another very mysterious notion that's in your writing about repentance, that there is a notion of repenting to the dead. Mm-hmm. So would you talk about that? Right. Well, again, the, you know, the, the rabbis have this extraordinary uh, idea that if you need to, to repent to a person who's died, uh, again, they have to assume you know who that person is and and you can find their grave. You're supposed to go to the grave 
of that person and bring with you 10 members of the community. And 10 members is significant because that's the minimum quorum for communal prayer yeah. uh, in Jewish tradition. So that, that is to say uh, the 10 people represent the community. So you come to the grave and in the hearing and the witness of those 10 people, you apologize um, to the deceased and thereby you do, you do repentance, you do tshuva. Uh, and, and it's interesting. When I, when I wrote in the book, I've never known anybody who's actually done this. That sounds, you know, <laughs> remarkable, right? Yeah. And then one day, in the context of talking to somebody in, in a synagogue in Palo Alto, they told me the story of somebody who did exactly that, of a woman who had a younger sibling who had been disabled and, uh, and then died. And, and this, this older sibling felt that she had always been mean and... Uh, and, and, and not not properly respectful of the needs of her younger sibling, and she felt terribly guilty after her sister died, and she went to the grave with her parents and repented to her now deceased um, sibling. Uh, and you can imagine the power that that would have, yeah. right? Um, yeah. To, to actually know that there is even then a possibility of uh, of trying to make right what you what you did wrong. Well, and I think you know, you, as you describe that, you, you talk about the implications of it. You know, what it implies is that is that when we harm another person or, or when we fail to rise to the occasion, that we that we somehow damage the community as a whole. That the that the mm. consequences of our action kind of transcend space and time. I mean, just as our bodies and our psyches hold a lot that transcends space and time. Right. Um, you don't have to talk about it in a mis- mystical way. Um, right. Right, and, and it's and, yeah. it, and it's true in a sense that our you know uh, our sins live on after us, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if I stole money from somebody, uh, you know, uh, and I and I now die, the money that I the money that I stole is still not there, it still yeah. hasn't been restored to them, right? Yeah. I mean, there's some sense in which what we did wrong continues to have impact and ripple effects long after we're not even here to see them any longer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said that the, the Jews have long believed that our trans, transgressions against one another have cosmic consequences, that what is at stake in our moral interactions with others transcends the effects that we can observe. But then there's also the flip side of that, which is Martin Buber saying, the wounds of the order of being can be healed in infinitely many other places than those at which they were inflicted, which is right, such a, a wonderful a- thing to think about. Right, and it's it's one of those things that I, when I, when I came across that passage in Buber's writing, I was um, I was I was struck by the power of that notion. Right, yeah. that so I, I can't go back and find the person that I actually harmed, but suppose I could find some other person in like situation, and and make it up to them. Right, if I can now be more loving and and compassionate toward 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 others in ways that I wasn't on a given occasion with someone else I can right the wrong I can I can rebalance the scales of justice so to speak in the universe by bringing more love and compassion into the world in one place where I took it away in, in some other right and that is a very jewish notion also right that one mm-hmm. even one good deed starts to tilt the scales starts to tilt that's, those larger scales that's right and they and they talk in in the, in the talmud about you know the power of, of repentance is that it brings redemption to the world. Right. Uh, that each each good deed we do, each time we repent, we actually push the world a little closer toward goodness, right? And a little farther from 
from evil. And in that sense, every act has cosmic significance, right? It, it, it moves the whole, the whole world. It's like the, um, you know, the arc of uh, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, right? right. right? There's a sense in which it, it's a very long arc, but every little bit that every one of us does moves it a little farther in the right direction. And, you know, I'd love to dwell on that word redemption a little bit as we draw to a close. It's a grand word, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful word, and, and, and you used it, and I'd, it, it was also in my notes right here, because, you know, what all of this points at, what repentance points at, the, the, the desired effect, the hoped-for effect is redemption, which is something larger still. Hmm. Right, and of course, in, you know, in, in, in Jewish tradition, the notion of redemption is all tied up with um, the idea that this plays out on a on a world historical stage, right? Yeah. It's it, it's not just redeeming myself from sin. Um, it's about redeeming the world from slavery and bondage, right? The the, the model is the Exodus, right? Liberation yeah. from slavery and 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 political oppression, really. And, and and in that sense, repentance is even in the most private ways that I may repent. I am actually, again, the ripple effects of how that's going to um, spread out beyond my life um, may not be known to me, but they will be felt by others. And that, that is part of moving the world a little bit closer toward the desired end state that, that God had intended from the beginning. But again, only intended to happen through our, through our moral choices. And so when we make those choices, we are both emulating God and bringing the world closer to the place that that God wants it to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you acknowledge that miracles are out of fashion. and <laughs> But, there, yeah. you know, this, 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 what we're talking about here, there's, there's mystery to it. There's, there's an alchemy to it. I mean, so as you quote Rabbi, uh, is it Soloveitchik? Soloveitchik. Soloveitchik. Okay. Yes. See, I'm forgetting. Is he, was he Polish? Was he? Uh, you know, f- anyway, I'm not certain. In I couldn't I'm remember. I, my pronunciation, yeah. I'm losing yeah. all this stuff. <laughs> Rabbi, say it again. Salavechik. Salavechik, yeah. Rabbi Salavechik yeah. said, um, repentance cannot be comprehended rationally. It does not really make sense. Even the angels do not understand what repentance is. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's such a wonderful thing to yeah. think, uh, you know, even if you don't believe in angels, the notion that angels uh, wouldn't <laughs> exactly. even, under, wouldn't, even angels wouldn't understand this, yeah. right? You know, and that's, I, I end the book there because it strikes me that there is something mysterious in the human spirit that, that, that gets touched in this, in this process of repentance. That is to say, you know, I've watched this happen, right, in the lives of other addicts and recovering people in the circle that I've been a part of for these years. And, and I've seen it outside of that circle and others, right? Yeah. That, 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 a, that a person who, who, who may have been habitually one way at a certain point really does turn their lives around and become a different kind of person. How, the, how did that happen? How did they manage to do that? Right? What, what, what was it that enabled them uh, to make the changes all of a sudden or maybe even gradually, at one point in their lives that they were incapable of making at an earlier point in their lives. It, it, it is a kind of a mystery, and, and yet we watch it happen in the lives of people around us. And so we know it's possible. Um, it, it, the, the notion that I can take my, my faults and turn them into merits is 
makes no sense rationally. Yeah. Uh, as, I, as I say, you know, it's, it's like it's like t- having an accountant tell you that a, that that a debit is a credit or something. It doesn't it doesn't compute. And yet, in another sense, on a spiritual level, it's entirely possible that we could take our failings and use them to move our lives forward toward toward more wholeness and toward more goodness. And when we see that happening, it is it's it's sort of wondrous and mysterious. Uh, and yeah. it's and it's not logical. It, it makes no sense rationally, but it does happen, and we know that that it that it's possible. It, it also it also does tend to happen with a long arc, right? It, it would like mm. it's a, it's a combination of of effort and time. You know, it's like the long arc of history, and then the long arc right. of a lifetime. Um, but you're so right. right. You're so right. Which is also one of the reasons I think um, Jewish tradition would say we ought never to give up on anyone. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's you, you don't know, uh, even even in the person who looks to be completely a lost cause, yeah. right? Uh, who looks to be mired in transgression. That person yet could turn around, um, and so you know that's the hopefulness that we that we carry when we focus on repentance, that, mm-hmm. that there's always the possibility of redemption. There's always the possibility that the human spirit and the human desire for goodness will reassert itself over against a, maybe a long-standing ingrained pattern of the opposite. And, and then, because I, I like just continuing to assert the paradox, and then, so there's the mystery of that, of the turn and the return, and then there's the mystery that and this is why, you know, the language of getting to the end point, right, is such like that, like, I absolutely believe in this hope and this redemption. And then I'm just also, but there's something in me that takes delight in this this paradox, you know, that redemption then is real, but it also doesn't mean perfection or moral blamelessness, right? So that, so there's a, there's an end, which is a, is also a beginning, and that mm-hmm. life goes on in, in all in all its fullness and, and, and you know, and messiness, um, although it may be a different... Um, Though it may be changed, that's right. Well, and that you know, again, it's it's that same notion that in a, in a way, if if all that counted was uh, how clean our record was, then the person who was completely righteous would be on a higher level than the person who'd sinned and repented, right? Yeah. But but it isn't like that because the purpose of this is a sort of a a burning away of the of the dross of the of the human spirit, right? And and becoming more and more godlike and more and more pure. And, and to do that is to be engaged in that process is precisely the point of uh, of repentance, and it's never done. And yet, each time you do it, you know that you have come a little closer mm. to the kind of life that you were meant to live. Mm. And and that's really um, uh, what what under what undergirds, I think, this whole notion of repentance that we we never reach the end state of perfection nor are we nor are we meant to we are meant to be in a in a process of constant self-evaluation self-reflection not in a sense of self-flagellation but in a sense of opportunity every time i transgress i have an opportunity to start a new story and find one more place in my life for moral growth and development um so you know one of the other Hard questions that you pose is you know, or I don't say I don't know, yeah hard. It's not as hard as is there is there no transgression, <laughs> which cannot be for which repentance um, is impossible. But 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 what is here's the question is what is the experience of shuva for those who engage in repentance continually throughout their lives? So so I do want to I want to turn that question on at you. 
And, um, you know, this is something that you've been not just, you know, practicing as, in your life as a Jew, but also reflecting on as a scholar and um, in your spiritual life and as a person in recovery um, and as a person who, you know, has this ritual of Yom Kippur year in, year out. So, but, so I just wonder, you know, as you've moved through your life um, with all of that, um, what, what, what have you learned um, that continues to nuance it? And, and mm. also, what have you learned about how to make it more real and more effective? That's a wonderful question. I've learned that it's hard. I've learned that it's never it's never easy. I mean, the, the path is laid out. I mean, the tradition is very clear about how one goes about doing this work. And even if one practices it regularly, it's still hard. It's still hard to live in that self-reflective way of knowing always that there's an opportunity here to grow and to learn and to do better. Um, and so I, I, I guess the first thing I'd say is that I've learned that without the support of a network of people around me in my in my recovery circle, it would be very difficult to do this. It would mm-hmm. be very difficult without that support and so simultaneously without the support of my own religious community, the synagogue that I attend regularly and I'm very active in, the the larger circle of friends with whom I share deeply the, you know, the things that are happening in my life. So that without their love and support, it would be very hard. It would be even harder to do yeah. right, and, than, and actually, than it already is innately. And I want you to keep going, but I, I just I want to underline that because I, I, I think that, you know, we've talked about how hard it is to talk about something like repentance in American culture. And I think something that works against it is that we tend to think of everything being an individual effort, right? And you're, so one of the things you're saying is, you know, that you sink more deeply into this sacred realization that we, we aren't supposed to be alone with this stuff. Anyway, keep that's, going. That's, 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 no, that's absolutely right. I think yeah. it, is, it is, you know, the work is our own, as I said earlier, but the, the, the process, the, the context is, yeah. a, is a communal one. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a network of support that I think everyone needs, um, to grow spiritually and, and morally. Um, I guess I guess the other thing I've learned is that um, the, 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 thr- the thrill of repentance, to use that expression, yeah. the sense of joy, uh, or, or you might say in the uh, in, in sort of 12-step terminology, in the terminology of the serenity prayer, the, the, the sense of serenity that one finds when one feels that I have found, when when I have felt that I've actually done something wrong and then really truly repented for it, that that sense of serenity and calm and peacefulness is among the most wonderful feelings I know, um, and and that's part of what maybe propels me to keep wanting to do it, despite how arduous and hard it is, right? Because there really is a payoff. Mm -hmm. The payoff really is that uh, I feel cleaner morally. I feel happier and more at peace with myself and the world. And and that's, that's what makes this work worthwhile, um, is that it enables us to repair what's broken 
Um, one of the great things that, again, Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav said was, um, if you believe you have the power to, 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 ruin, to ruin it, believe you have the power to fix it. Mm. And, and that, that's, there's a profound truth in that, mm. that, you know, we, we all know that we have the power to mess up. <laughs> mm. Nobody doubts that. We, we all know that in ourselves. But to believe that we also have the power to make it right and to know that that's a choice we get to make every day is, is empowering and liberating. And that sense of liberation and peacefulness and empowerment is, is, uh, is an extraordinary uh, benefit of, of the hard work. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I think there's a, there's a proportionality here. That, you know, <laughs> the work is really hard, but the benefit is really, mm. is really remarkable. Mm. And um, I, I think those are the two things I've learned from both my personal work and my scholarly work and, and even the work that I've done in the context of, of my own Jewish community where, um, you know, in, in various leadership roles, I've had opportunities to work with a lot of people and watch all sorts of relationships go bad and then work with people to help try to make up for what, what got off, off track. And doing that and watching that happen, there is a kind of a miraculous quality to it. Yeah. And you feel like you're witnessing something really extraordinary when that happens. Well, this is great. Thank you so much. I hope. Thank you, Krista. It's been a delight. Yeah, it really has been a delight. Um, so um, we will. You're in touch with Lily, and she'll let you know what's happening with this, and uh, <laughs> we'll get you over to our studio all the way over in Minneapolis sometime. Oh, I would love okay. to. Okay, all right. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and I, best of wishes with your move. Thank you. Okay. Thank you all so right. much. Bye bye. Bye bye.